Kurtlemeyer obviously was a genius, but Gable was fucking Dan Gable. I'm sorry, the whole language. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. Our guest today is one of the most requested guests I've had on the show, Chris Campbell. He was a two-time NCAA champ for the University of Iowa back in the 70s. Chris was actually Dan Gable's first NCAA champion. He was a world champ in 1981. And then in 1992, he was the oldest American to win a bronze medal or to win a medal at the Olympics. He took a bronze. And that was after a several-year layoff in the mid-'80s. So Chris has dominated in multiple decades. Tons of the Olympic champions we know and love, Kendall Cross, John Smith, Royce Alger, they all talk about Chris Campbell as like a godlike figure, messiah-like figure. So it was an honor to have him on, and I can't wait for you to hear his story. Fan of the week goes to our friend Philip Walter, hailing from Winterville, Georgia. Proud new owner of some wrestling changed my life coffee mugs. If you too want to drink your morning coffee, your morning Joe, as I call it, from a wrestling changed my life coffee mug, go to store that wrestlingchangemylife.com. No sponsor today, but if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. And if you're listening on Spotify, give us a star rating. And that's it, folks. Let's give it up for the great Chris Campbell. Chris Campbell, welcome to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. Honored to have you. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. Let's start. It's uh, it's June of your senior year. You just graduated high school. How did you end up in Iowa City that summer? Um, it's um, well, that's a co- bit of a convoluted story. I had been accepted into the University of Maryland, um, and um, and therefore I told a, a school, Montclair State, that I wasn't going there. There was a guy, assistant coach Richie Softman, said, "Well, if you're not going here, I can't let you go to Mont- Maryland because you got too much talent. You just, you can't wait. You can't waste it. Uh, I'm going to call up uh, Gable and see if we can get you uh, at the University of Iowa." Um, so um, I believed him actually. So it's one of those things, you know. Guy tells you do it, so I believed him. 
I, I had a car. I sold it, got a plane ticket out to Iowa, and I got a job at a factory. Colonel Meyer helped me get the job, the head coach at the factory. So I had a job at a factory, and I was uh, cleaning off car parts in the in the mornings and afternoons, and then going in the, in the late evenings to wrestle with people like Abel and so forth. Uh, and ready for the national championships, the junior nationals. So when you flew up, when you sold your car and bought the plane ticket, had you ever talked to Gable or this is all just on a whim? You're hoping it works out when you get there. You know, the odd thing was that Gable had came to um, my school sports there. Apparently Bump Elliott, who was the AD at the time, had a close relationship. I don't know if it was with Coach Gary Keller, my high school coach, or wherever, said that Gable had to go. Gable apparently was really pissed off that he had to go. So <laughs> I, I met him there. Um, but I had no idea at that time that, um, you know, I was going to be going to Iowa. And let's not forget, Dan Gable's not even the head coach at this time. Yeah, I mean, he's not the head coach, but um, I mean, Colonel Meyer obviously was a genius, but Gable was fucking Dan Gable. I'm sorry, the language. You know? No, you could swear. You could swear. So, so you get out there, and as and you, as you said, no scholarship, nothing, and you're still getting ready for what's now known as Fargo. Back then, it was it was the Junior Nationals hosted out of Iowa City, and you wrestle none other than Mark Johnson in the finals. That's right, and you know I know that the, the University of Iowa was heavily recruiting Mark Johnson. Uh, to come there, and they were disappointed they didn't come. But I think Colonel Myers relieved because I think our score was 1-0, and the only point he got with me when he, when I stepped out of bounds, he pushed out of bounds. So, and what was it like, uh, kind of getting settled in, in Iowa, your first couple months there, transitioning into your freshman year? Well, that was tough because I, you know, I was really homesick, miss my mom, miss miss New, Westfield, New Jersey, quite a bit. Um, so I think the hardest part for me was just being homesick. Um, the, the, the wrestling, I was just stunned and amazed that what I considered wrestling genius that I was all around me, you know, I was just in this incubator. That was the most amazing thing for a person who was talented in the sport of wrestling. And what kind of influence did J-Rob have on, on the technique at the time? Well, Jay Robinson actually took me under his wing. Um, and uh, went over a whole host of techniques and strategies um, uh, for wrestling. So, I mean, with respect to my style, I think you could say that Jay was sort of the uh, basically created my style for me after after high school. And it's just crazy to think about because you know you heard you always hear in the eighties. You know, Gable was was the was the guy running it. Um, Jay Rob was a technique guy. Then later Zaleski maybe filled that role when Jay Rob left. But you know, in the early '70s, again Gable was a, was an assistant. You know, everyone kind of knew he was going to be the head coach. But then Jay Rob's in there as well. It's like this room is just crazy. And who were some of your workout partners? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, obviously uh, John and Ben Peterson would try, come by every now and then when they were getting ready to prepare for the Olympics, and I think it was '76. Uh, also in 73, I would run into them quite a bit. Obviously, Gable uh, was a wrestling partner. Um, really? You know, Jay, Jay was, oh yeah, Gable would beat me up. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you know, if, if he thought that you were sort of uh, not trying your hardest uh, in any particular day, the next day you'd be wrestling with him. And that, that was not a good day. 
And what was like the structure of the practice back then? Um, you know, we would do various things. And obviously, Jay was really sort of focused on technique. I mean, and Gable couldn't give a, couldn't care less about technique. So, you know, I would be working with Gabe, with Jay Robinson, walking through my moves slowly to make sure that my head position, my arm positions, everything was in the right place. And then when wrestling party started, you know, Gabe would be pulling you, grabbing you, making you tired and, and, and pulling you back on the mat to try and get you to wrestle when you say, no, I'm tired because he won't let, he won't let you. Uh, (laughs) And were you guys doing um, twice a day practices back then, like technique sessions in the morning or did that start later? Well, we, we, we always did techniques sessions in the morning, but it was probably trying to think when we started really pick it up, maybe two or three months before the national championships. I don't, I mean, we didn't do it like at the beginning of the year. I don't think, I, I don't really remember to tell you the truth. I mean, yeah. it's kind of interesting you talking to me because the guys that are wrestling now, um, their parents weren't even born when I was wrestling. That's the crazy thing about it. It is crazy to think about. And then, you know, you fast forward to 1992 and and that's now a generation. So I, I graduated high school in 07. I wasn't old enough to watch the 92 Olympic Games and remember it. But those stories from Barcelona were just kind of at the end of my era. And, and you heard about how tough that team was. And then obviously 96 was 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 definitely something you heard about. But I mean, you're talking about your career spanning that whole gamut. I mean, one of the biggest, you know, golden eras for American wrestling, 72 Olympics, that's the modern era, in my opinion. That changed everything. And then after that, there was a there was a, a real strong period in in American freestyle wrestling, especially in that that late '80s period. Yeah, you know, I think our '92 team was well. First of all, the 1980 team that I made, that Jimmy Carter boycotted, that would have that would have rivaled the '72 Olympic team. Um, and me and Lee Kemp certainly had shots at winning a gold medal, and we would have been the first two African-Americans to win a gold medal in the Olympics. Uh, but all that was destroyed uh, because of Carter. How'd you find uh, that out? Like, where were you at when you found that news out? I I had just, I think I had just made the Olympic team, won the, the, the trials. And I was in Iowa State, I think I, inside or outside of my house. And um, then I heard that it was official. Then I took a stick and started beating the tree to death. <laughs> yeah. Man, because... I read uh, an old Sports Illustrated article where you said at the 80 trials, you beat Lieberman and you beat Peterson and you were in some kind of like special zone where, you know, really that weekend. What, what do you remember from that feeling in that zone? Well, here's the thing. I mean, I had been sort of um, not serious about wrestling um, and partying a little bit in Iowa City. Then I moved up to Iowa State. And when I moved up to Iowa State, they, you know, they paid me as a coach. Then I got really serious and wrestling, uh, and really serious training. So um, I had trained, you know, I had I'd done all the things, yoga, stretching, running, weightlifting, technique, uh, meditation, all of that stuff I was doing. And, you know, I, I was doing it because I was pissed off because when I was in the, uh, the national championships, I think in 79, whatever, I can remember wrestling Lieberman and the, the the mat judge blew the whistle to stop the mat. So I stopped wrestling. And Lieberman jumped on me, threw me to my back. And then the two side judges called me pinned. Then the mat judge went up to the side judge and says, well, he can't be pinned because I blew the whistle to stop the match. Um, <laughs> and they said, oh, so we're sorry, he's pinned. He's, he's done. So I had gotten some stolen calls that were I felt were unreasonable. 
So I was of the opinion that, you know, I can either quit because I think this is unfair or I can just beat the hell out of everybody I wrestled. And so I decided to beat the hell out of everybody I wrestled. And I mean, I beat him. I think Lieberman was like 23 to 8 or 23 to 6. And I was on my last stalling call. In fact, in the first period, it was 11, I think it was 11 to 3. And at that time, you got three stalling calls. They were going to caution me out. I was beating them 11 to 3 or something to that effect. Uh, and then the, 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 the head referee had to come down and said, oh, no, he scored over 10 points. So he gets an extra caution. So anyway, the end of the, I mean, you know, that sort of, those sort of situations really pursued me to be to be the best. And 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 I knew that nobody was going to beat me. It, it wasn't even it wasn't even a question. That is that's special to get to that place. And I gotta imagine to get there that the training you put in must have been just arduous. And in that same article, it said you were doing like seven hours of day training. Do you remember kind of what your regiment was back in those days? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, obviously I was drilling in the morning, an hour and a half. I was either running or weightlifting an hour and a half. And then at practice, I was, you know, wrestling two, two, two and a half hours and then watching films in the evening. And I and picked up a lot of good stuff from watching films. Uh, what's the guy's name? Oganeshi. Uh, some of the stuff he was doing, I picked up. My lift, I think it was. So you were just... Oganeshi, I forget who it was. You were just totally all in at that point on, on the Olympic dream. like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was... That was everything to me. There was nothing else that mattered. And then amazingly that in 81, right after the heartbreak of 80, you win your first world title. What what do you remember from that experience? Well, I can remember that I wasn't as sharp as I was in 80 because the um the boycott I really emotionally diminished my drive um to for for training. It really was it was heartbreaking. Um so I wasn't. I wasn't at the best, the best I was at, like say in 1980, but I was good enough, obviously, to win the win the world championships. And I was I I was thrilled to win the world championships. I think they get more significant significant to me as I get older because I only won one for one thing. But uh, but it, it but it does mean at the end of the day I was the best in the world. I mean, and that's you know nice to say. That's crazy, and but but to your point. Six months, eight months before that, you were you had lost your your drive to train. I mean, for folks who are out there now struggling with with some depression or or anxiety or whatever, like what what advice did you give them? Would you give them to get out of that rut that you were in uh, in, in those months after that cancellation? Boy, I, I I'm not I don't think I'm qualified to give anybody advice. I mean, you know, my my whole thought would be, you know, toughen up, get over it, and get to work. You know, <laughs> about whining. And just do it because either you do it or you don't. That's that's life. Wow. How did you so how did you ended up kind of stepping away in the mid 80s um, to, to pursue a, a career in law school? I mean, what, what went into that decision? Well, I um, having not made the Olympic team, I realized that the chances of me being what I wanted to do my whole life. Only thing I ever wanted to do was be a head wrestling coach. I realized that that was near impossible. That was going to happen. So my best, my next best thing was being a, you know, going to law school. I really wanted to go to law school. So you, even as a two-time national champ, world champion, world champion, one of only seven Americans to win a world championship at the time. Yeah, I couldn't even get interviews. 
And is that everybody wanted me as assistant coach, but I couldn't be a head coach. That and do you think it was it was racially motivated at the time, or what was going on with that that process? Well, if you look at the NCAA, you look at the coaches and and who are coaching at the NCAA level, then you look at the competitors who are competing at the World Olympic Chicken, you see a big, big uh, difference between the participants and the coaches. Mm. So you go end up at Cornell and, and pers- you know, you're still kind of coaching at a cursory level from my understanding, but, but your, your, your big focus is law school. Yeah. I love law school. Uh, and I was really fortunate that um, my, I think it was my, I don't know if the, they started to pay me like ten thousand a month, ten thousand a year to be uh, a graduate assistant wrestling coach. So that that helped out. I mean, I I didn't have to borrow too much money to go to law school. And how much training were you doing at that time? Oh, I was just uh, I was probably running, weightlifting, doing yoga, just to sort of stay in shape, and then working with the team. Um, but yeah, you mentioned yoga and meditation a few times, and. I don't know how pervasive those things were back then, but how did you get interested in, in something like uh, yoga? Well, I, you know, I went to the University of Iowa and, you know, they had their uh, liberal wing of, of the universities where the guys who would do yoga and, and then meditation. So I, and, and even vegetarianism. So I was really reading up on all of that stuff um, and um, decided to do it. I didn't really implement it till I went to Iowa State. Um, because it was just so much less sort of noise in my life at Iowa State. Uh, I was with Willie Gatson brought me up there. Uh, and Harold Nichols was the head coach at the time who, who, who really helped me out with respect to focusing on school, but helped me out with uh, wrestling too. So I was, I was lucky to have Harold Nichols and, and, and Willie Gatson. And so it was, it was a change in your lifestyle off the mat as well when you went to Iowa State, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Much, it was a much, uh, much more um, family oriented lifestyle. And why did you become a vegetarian? Um, I didn't want to kill animals to eat, to live. Uh, that was it. Yeah. I didn't know if there was like a performance benefit or I was just curious well, how he got yeah, there. I mean, there is, there definitely was performance benefit. The, the funny thing about me, when I went vegetarian, I gained about five to 10 pounds. Most people say they lose weight. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And it's just crazy because again, back in, in the early eighties and even the seventies, as you said, when you first encountered it, Iowa, it's probably wasn't as common as it is now. Now yoga is everywhere. Right. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Are you still a vegetarian? I'm a, um, what do they call it? Uh, vegan. No, I don't even eat cheese or milk or anything. Yeah. Whoa, next step I big, then. I got to take B12 vitamins though. And when you think about meditation, I, I often think of visualization. Was that something you practice? Um, kind of putting yourself in those world championship matches? No. Whenever I tried to do that, I, I, my performance was terrible. Really? Um, yeah, the only the only thing I needed to do is go into the go into the tournament with a clear mind, not worrying about winning or losing because, and at that time nobody was going to beat me. So it wasn't. I mean, you know, it wasn't like in you know, most of your life you're worried about losing the match. Nobody's going to beat me. Um, so 
the focus was on just being able to sort of be here and now, to be totally focused on the here and now. So I would count my breath. I mean, I wasn't doing this any spiritual stuff. I was doing it really to sort of focus my ability to concentrate. And if you can concentrate better than the other guy, uh, that gives you an edge. Oh, and at that level, every match, I mean, like how many matches did you have to win to win a world title back in those days? I think five. I think wow. it was five. Uh, I think, let me see, in the Olympic trials, I must have had, I wrestled Eddie Bannock. I wrestled, um, who's I just said, uh, Mark Lieberman, John Peterson. I think Mark Schultz was in my weight class. Uh, there's a couple other guys, um, but they weren't within 10 points of me. Wow. I didn't wrestle Mark Lieberman, Mark, Mark Schultz, though. So I don't know, because Mark was kind of funky, you know, and, and you never know. For me, I had my hardest times with guys who were really funky. So that's who, so when you came back in, I think 90 was your, was that your first world team back? Yeah. So the guy before you at that weight, that was Mark Schultz's weight, that same weight? 90 kg? 98? Uh, was it 98? I was at 98 when I came back. But what I'm saying is, like, at that weight, was was Schultz the guy, like, in the 88 Olympics at that weight? No, he was uh, 180. Got it. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, knowing you had we that. We were 180, and in, in when I made the Olympic team in 80, it was 180. Got so it. I was in weight class with all these guys. Got it. Okay. Yeah, those are those are legends in there. I and mean, that's that's the uh, that's the mini tournament. <laughs> yeah. 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 Crazy. And. And man, we didn't even talk about the the NCAA finals with with Mark Johnson. I mean, you were Dan Gable's first NCAA champion. Exactly, I'm really proud of that. Yeah, um, it, it's kind of interesting, you know. I I I, I really like Mark Johnson. So Mark Johnson beat me in the nationals, but I mean, there can't be a nicer guy in the world um, than him. Uh, and um, when I was moving back from Iowa State to Iowa, Mark helped me move back in. He picked up a piano. Walked up the stairs with it, literally, and I just was stunned. Dude was so strong, <laughs> yeah. so strong. I, uh, yeah, no, I, I freaking love Mark Johnson. He's, he's unbelievable. Um, I just had his, uh, his compadre on Jim Heffernan last week, and and they were telling stories about Oregon State and recruiting less gutches, and it's like, oof, man, well, that would have been that would have been an amazing time to be around uh, that Oregon State program those two years they were there. But I sort I had sort of held back when I think we wrestled um, we wrestled Michigan at home my senior year, and I had sort of held back. I didn't go after Mark as hard as I I, I could have um, because I didn't want to go into the national tournament undefeated. So I think we tied, and then I I, I think Mark felt bad about his performance at the nationals, but he really shouldn't. Because I think maybe he thought, well, hey, I'm getting close to this guy now because we tied in the next one. But, I mean, it was – I just unloaded on him at the, the Nationals. It was just, you know, different. And is it true that at, at Big Tens he was up a weight and decided to come down? I didn't hear that. I okay. never heard that. I never saw him. I didn't I know if you had wrestled him at Big Tens. I don't re- I would have had to wrestle in the Big Tens, right, you would think. Well, see, back – see, this is – this it's funny you say that because it just came across my mind. I think back then you could change weights before from the conference to the nationals. And 
I just have a memory in my oh. mind of someone telling me that maybe Mark was up. But if you rested him in the duel, that would be very odd to go your way up at Big Tens and back down for Nationals. Either way, though, it's just crazy that that's the guy you wrestled at the Junior Nationals in high school. Right. And then you wrestle him in the NCAA Finals your junior and senior year. And then he comes to, to Iowa City. Yeah, he's the coach at Iowa City, yeah. Crazy. Why did you we leave- were here together for a year, yeah. Why did you leave Iowa State to go back to Iowa? Um, I was um, I was demoted from an assistant coach to a graduate assistant coach. And uh, I didn't feel like that was warranted. Given that I had, you know, won world championships and stuff like that, you know. Seriously. Wow. But so you- Harold Nichols, like, he, he kind of, like, wanted you to focus on coaching. And I think it's a little bit different now where, where people understand that, hey, you know, if, if you win world titles, if you're doing that stuff, that's really, really good for the program. I mean, I, he lost Gable now, right? Mm-hmm. Gable went from Iowa State to Iowa because of this, his mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. So you go back to Iowa City and then, wow, I'm just, uh, your journey is it's just amazing because the cool thing to me is that you stepped away, you go to law school, you're totally in on that. But in the back of your mind, you know how dominant you are. And when do like when do you finally start to seriously consider that hey I may have another shot at this Olympic dream? All right, so after law school, I applied for a couple of wrestling coaches' jobs. I didn't get any. I know I can remember applying to Michigan State, and I think they hired a guy who was a Greco coach, which I just couldn't understand. Um, <laughs> oh, God, um, tried to tell them that they didn't hear me, um, and and I just thought, how many national titles did they lose? for their, their, their athletes doing that stuff like that, you know, not hiring the best person. Um, anyway, what was the question again? A question was, when did you seriously start considering a comeback? Oh, I, um, I had got a job, well, went to law school, graduated. I think it was, went to 87, had a job in, um, Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut, which I, I detest the place. Um, <laughs> I, I shouldn't say about somebody may love it. I detest Connecticut. Um, and so then they moved me up to Syracuse, New York, upstate New York, Fayetteville, New York, which, which I loved. Um, and I was, uh, I was really unhappy, uh, at being a, an, an attorney. I, I was just miserable. You know, I love wrestling. I want to do wrestling. So I was miserable. I was, it was with respect to depressing, it's probably some of the most depressing times of my life. Um, so then I started to go. So I was running in the morning and weightlifting just to try to feel better. And then I would start to go to the practices at Syracuse University. And they had a young guy there named Mark Kerr, um, who um, I started working with, you know. And, um, and, and so and Gene Mills was, was, was uh, the assistant coach there. So I found out that I started wrestling. I was wrestling three days a week wrestled hard three days a week. I was weightlifting, uh, running in the morning and weightlifting for lunch in the afternoon. Um, and I was like, I'm not, I'm at the training level. I'm not, I'm not getting hurt because I thought I'm getting injured. So, uh, so then, uh, I, I came out, I think in 89 and I went to the national tournament and I got second to Jim Shear, couldn't finish a tripod situation. Um, and then at the, and then, then at the round Robinson the wrestle off, I think, uh, you know, I had beaten shade pretty easy in the, the national tournaments, but in the, in the finals, I mean, he just, he just uh, felt like 10 times strong. He just crushed it. 
Um, but so this is why you're working a full-time yeah. suit job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so then in, in 1990, um, you know, I had figured out how to, to defeat the tripod that Jim was, was doing, and, and I was ready. I was ready to roll because you know I was up from so I was from 180 to 198. I was ready to roll. Uh, I got second in, in the world that year. Uh, I, I could have hit Karatsev with a boob. I was thinking about it tonight. Later, beat him in the following world championships. If I would hit it then, I would be a two-time world champion. But there you go. At least I got one. Yeah, no, I, we're going to get to Hadartsev because that era, um, and then when you look at, at later in the 90s with, with Hadim, uh, if, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, the great Iranian, they had a great battle. So that way, and then, you know, Melvin Jack, uh, Melvin Douglas comes through. So it's just amazing how many guys were in there. And, and you were were right in the mix, as you said. Um, but so why do you think you were depressed at the beginning before you started working out and wrestling again? Just that you missed wrestling? Yeah, it was so boring. I mean, you got to visualize a life where I'm in a wrestling room doing what I love, right? So that's the whole thing, doing what I love. And for me, helping other kids become national champions or whatever, achieve their goals is is, is just, is, to me, is very satisfying, especially if you have the knowledge to do it. So I was doing that. And then activity, you know, my body was limber, so... Um, you know, and if you're sitting in a desk all day, it's just physically, it's it, it's awful to sit in a desk. I do it now with no problem. But at that point, you know, sitting down in the desk was killing me. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Iowa State, they demoted me because I couldn't, I couldn't be in the office. And it wasn't because um, I didn't want to work hard. It's because it, my body just felt awful when I was sitting all the time. Um, so anyway. Um, you didn't even have chairs in your house, right? Back at those yeah, days. That's right. Yeah, we didn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, that changed now. Um, yeah. So. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's, so that kind of went into the, and I, I honestly, it happens to a lot of people. It happened to me a little bit. Not, not. I wouldn't say depression, but you get you get out of college, and then you're at your first office job, and you're there from eight to five, and after your first week, you're like. I got 30 more years of this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> I'm used to traveling around the world, right? Rusting on different places, doing different events. And now all of a sudden I'm going to this office. It's it's terrible, really. Pushing yourself every day to the, I mean, getting better in some way. Just like the, you know, improvement's a fun thing to chase. And, and when you don't see that, it's just, it's challenging. And so once you came back in 90 and you made the world team, did you stop beco becoming a lawyer for a couple of years and just train full time or were you doing double duty the whole time? No, I was doing double duty. I was um, I was truly training hard. The funny thing about that, I think it was in 1991, obviously I was second in the world and I had gone to the world championship on my vacation time. Uh, <laughs> and then my boss, my boss calls me in the office because I want to talk to you because they had put it in the Syracuse newspaper. And I thought, okay, this is this is the end of my wrestling career. And he goes, Chris, well, look, you know, looks like you've got a, a lot of talent here, and and we don't want to get in the way of that. So what we're going to do as a corporation is we're going to sponsor you uh, to compete. Uh, and so, um, so that was amazing. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, they gave me twenty thousand dollar raise. Whenever I go any place, I had a rental car, five star hotel room. It's interesting because in 19 was it 1977 world championships we were i think it was in i think it was in switzerland 
the the organization didn't have any money, so we had to sleep in the barns with the, with the horses. So I went from sleeping in barns with horses to five star hotels with rental cars. It was amazing. Are you serious? Like yeah. actual? Because <clears throat> Lee Lee Kemp said the same thing. He's like. You know, a lot of people say there was no money in wrestling in the 2000s, in the 90s, and the 80s. He's like, in the 70s, there was literally nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, wow, that's that's crazy because that's not that long of a difference to uh, to see that kind of change in in terms of some some financial support. Yeah, well, you know, they changed from the I think it was AAA to to whatever USA Wrestling. And then you know, obviously, they got John Dupont as a big donor, brought some money in there, even though it was sort of bad money but uh i mean and that that whole thing really started to change with the the clubs art Makatari with the sun kids kids and and so forth and fox fox woods fox catches whatever they were you know they were all paying people to to, mm-hmm. to to train so that's when it really started i mean if you wrestled in the early 80s 70s you know was you know you did it i mean i i think had had there been financial support for me, from like 1977 forward, I won three or four world cha- championships, you know, mm-hmm. easy. Um, but, you know, you had to work. You just, you just couldn't do it. Like if there was like now the RTCs, they have it how it's supposed to be done. And that's why we're seeing the results. So, yeah, yeah. you want an RTC program, you and you and Lee Kemp and and that gang from that era. Wow. I mean, Randy Lewis, whew, those are some skilled wrestlers. Now, when you get back on the scene in 90, there's a whole new crop of guys coming up. And one of them is John Smith. And, you know, another is, I don't know if Kevin Jackson had broke on quite at that time. Maybe 92 is his first time. But, you know, what's your impression of of, of the new crop of Team USA when you get on that 90 team and, and guys like John Smith? What do you see in there? Well, I mean, I just thought John Smith uh, was just this beautiful wrestler. It was just, to me, it was like, he, I didn't know how to wrestle. After watching him, I was figured out, oh, Jesus, you don't even know how to wrestle. Either. And then if, then if you went and you talked to him and you start talking about his technique and his strategies, then you really knew you didn't know how to wrestle. So I, I love John, John Smith, but I didn't like it, his wrestling style. Guys, it's really low. And it's just, I mean, it, it, it took away to me the most exciting parts of wrestling, which I think now would have really been highlighted given mixed martial arts. For example, headlocks, you know, souffles, hip tosses, arm throws, all of that stuff is gone because people are so low now. And mm-hmm. when I was wrestling at the time, you had to keep your head up and you had to contact for a while. So, I mean, you know, the, the styles have changed, but I mean, the, the, the technique is beautiful. You know, it's amazing to watch. And he was, I was, we were on world teams and Olympic teams together. I certainly didn't want to be on a team with him because I felt he was our leader. Wow. And when you think about your technique, you were named, you know, most technical of the 81 worlds. And, and you mentioned how John broke down technique. How, how did you look at technique? Were you someone who got into the, the finer details of where a finger was placed and, and where a hand was placed and, you know, three moves ahead kind of thing? Yeah. And, and, and for the record, I mean, it was, I was selected as the most technically prepared from my understanding from the media, the news media at the time that were there. All right. Now, John Smith won it. When he won it, he was selected by the wrestling organization. So right. his, to my mind, is legitimate. Mine is media. You know, I don't know, but hey, I'll take it. You know. <laughs> You're a modest man. Yeah. Um, but but would you think about technique like that? And your kind oh, of yeah. 
and watching the details. Walk through. I mean, you know, I would literally walk through technique, stop, make sure the head's in the right place, the arms in the right place, nothing's out of place. Really slow stuff, stuff that would drive Gable crazy. Yeah, but this <laughs> is the kind of thing that that uh, Robinson would want to teach, right? And so that's where I got it from. I really got my um, focus on technique from Jay Robinson. Yeah, and I was watching that match with Hugh and um, Kadartsev at the 92 Olympics. Like Even that match, it came down to basically one exchange where he had an inside tie and he was trying to find that far wrist and finally had it. And it's like, that just, that's just such a small battle. And and knowing you guys had wrestled before, um, you know, that had to be someone who you were, were keying in on. Um, what, did you, what did you make from just your first impression wrestling him, the great well, Russian? Well, I mean, we... We, we had a little long story, but at the Olympic Games, they changed the rules from that 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 week from uh, if you get a stall and you get put down. And so I had never been in a situation where you got put down. I'll say, so when they put me down in the Olympic Games, you know, he just ate me up. He tried to escape. You almost got yeah, out. <laughs> uh, but it was it was over. That's but, and that changed after the Olympic trials, two months prior to the Olympics, like rule changes. A week before, a week before the Olympics, it changed, which I always thought was kind of weird. Why change it then? Why don't you weird. go through the whole quad and then other people start up again? But it is what it is. Yeah, that was a major disadvantage to me. Um, but I, and what I should have done, and I look at now is, you know, you've got to constantly change, and you've got to understand that. And when Josh Smith was in the room showing the wrestling, the low singles. I should have been really focusing on that because uh, I, I, I probably could have got him a couple times since I was single. Yeah. Well, when you look at look at the uh, Kadartsev rivalry, and I look at you know your resume and his resume, he, he's definitely one of the best ever. Seven World Olympic titles, um, and then you know Rasul Hadim, who he wrestled after that, another great. You know what what stories do you have, or what memories do you have of, of battling uh, of battling um, uh, Kadartsev? Well, I can remember in the World Championships, the first time I wrestled him in 1990 in Japan, um, you know, he's always shooting and shooting and shooting. Uh, he's really strong, um, but I would just front hat off him, and, and that was that. I think I made one mistake when he shot on me. I tried to spin around him, do a spin around him, and, and then he, he sort of raised his arm, pulled over it, and, and took me down. That was a mistake with him, but... When I got in there, I, I felt like when I got my front headlock, usually you roll to the to your your the side because you've got the arm on. Mm -hmm. But I felt like, well, if I go to the other side, maybe I'll get him because he was so strong. Then in the World Championships in 1991, you know, I got him in a match and I felt the move and I hit it. And then I beat him in the World Championships in 1991. And then I lost to the Cuban before the final, so it took me out of contention. To, to be in the finals and, and Cardinals have ended up winning the world championships. Oh, so it was a pool? Like you were in the same pool? Yeah, yeah. I, I had terrible draws. I mean, I was going to say, had, like, Zeke Jones, who uh, he would get these draws that there's like nobody on his side, you know? <laughs> and I was just the exhaustion. I had Cardinals, I had the Cuban, I had everybody on my side all the time. Well, even in 92, it looked like you had Cardinals first round. First round, yeah. <laughs> It's just like, hey, it doesn't make sense sometimes. And um, yeah, that's that's crazy that that was the pool. So 90, I was wondering how uh, how 91 shook out because, you know, you can't really tell from the UWW website what the 
what the bracketing system was at the time. And I know there were some interesting things. I mean, in 92, we all know John Smith lost to Reynoso in the pool, but still went on. So, I mean, 92 was, was a bloodbath. That was a loaded tournament. Yeah. Yeah. What was your experience of like the, uh, the, the Olympic experience and kind of opening ceremonies and all that? You know, um, I got a picture of me with, let me see, you got a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. You recognize these guys? I see Kenny. Yeah. I see KJ. <laughs> then who's that handsome guy in the middle? That's Chris Campbell in the middle. <laughs> Man. Those guys look young. Yeah, we're babies, right? But I um what a lineup. I feel blessed, blessed to have had the experience. It really was thrilling. Yeah. So who was who, that that Olympic team in '92? We had Bruce at heavyweight, and then were you next under him? Or was no, it of, um I think it was Coleman. Mark Coleman? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Coleman. Yeah. You and then and me and then then. Kenny, Kenny, and then um, Sam Saunders, and then I think John Smith and Kendall. Yeah, yeah. Well, he went on to win, but he was he was the baby of that team. And it's funny because uh, I was I've only interviewed Roy Salger one time. And Royce, if you're listening to this, please come on the podcast. Um, but I was at his house doing an interview for the John Smith documentary I did, and there's a picture of you in his living room uh, right after a practice one day chiseled to the core and this must have been like i think he made the team in 90 so tokyo so uh was tokyo 90 yeah yeah so but yeah man there's that that's right he should have won he should have won the world championships in 90 he he all he had to do was stall and it's the one thing he couldn't do which is just stall all you have to do is you stall and you win (laughs) well he said there was a uh afterwards the the cubans everyone had to had to do a uh a drug test and they would give the Cubans alcohol. So they would, would pee more. And then the Cubans didn't want to stop drinking. So they wouldn't do the drug test. And he, they said, uh, he said, <laughs> just quite the, uh, situation almost broke out there between the, the Russians and the Cubans, but he, he has a ton of stories as you know. Um, but yeah, just think about the guys on those teams. Yeah. Me and Roy were, were really good friends. Uh, we, we fought all the time. Um, that was our friendship was based on, Getting on each other's case all the time. Like actual fighting? No, not no, no. I mean, oh. We love each other. I, I mean, you know, he's one of my favorite people, but we would fight all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he's a legend and you know, one of the one of the best personalities in our sport. Um he so once you Yes, he is. <laughs> so once you made it to the Olympics, you've been waiting. You know, for over 12 years, if you think 1980 to 92, long way to get there. You get there, lose lose your first match to to um to the Russian, and then you come back for bronze. Where are you at leaving Barcelona? Like, where are you thinking the future holds for you in wrestling at that point? I wanted to go to another world championships. I felt that I had a chance to win a world championship. Um, but that wasn't in the cards uh for me. I uh I broke my neck in a car accident probably about three or four months after that. And um, that was it. Oh, wow. 
is that are you uh, healed up from that now? Is that still cause well, you issues or? No, I've got I'm fused in four places, and it's kind of interesting. The doctor said when he first went in, he said we're only going to fuse you in one place, but he said your bones were so porous, they were so you know they had been beaten up so much by wrestling, I think, that they weren't strong, and so they had to fuse me in four places. You know, I could withhold it. I could sort of stay fusing in one place, but not four. Right, and then. Melvin went on to win the Worlds that next year. Had you wrestled Melvin before, or was he new on the scene you know, in 93? We wrestled in the, the National Championship Finals. And um, and that's what I first noticed. Like I couldn't push off of my right arm. It turns out, well, because I had broken my neck, all that all my side was gone. And uh, that's when I first really, really realized that my neck was broken. I lost him in the National Finals 1-0, and they cautioned me one point for stepping out of bounds. Nobody takes me down. They're going to say these, every loss is like controversy. There's no, <laughs> no, no, nobody's going to take me down. It's ridiculous, but that's the way it is. And so you, you know, you saw wrestling at, at the highest levels for, for a deck, you know, decades, really three, and decades. It, three decades. And now we're in 20, uh, you know, 2023 and we're at, you know, a real pinnacle for USA wrestling. So when you look at these guys, now the David Taylor's and Jordan Barrow's, are you seeing like things that were do- being done back in your era that could be implemented now that just aren't? Or like, what's your take on like kind of the current state of where things are at technique wise and, and tournament wise on the freestyle scene? Well, I, c- I couldn't talk to him about technique because the technique was so different. I mean, it's, it's really, I guess each period of time is different. And this technique, I don't even understand half of it. Right. I mean, I'd have to do a deep dive and, and work with some guys and, and, and maybe get a feel for it. So, I mean, it's that different, you think? To me, oh, hell yeah. It's incredibly different. I mean, if, I mean, the, the, the way, the way I learned, the way I really became successful is that everybody had this idea that they could tire me out, right? So they were going to come after me to tire me out. They're going to tie me up, do all these kinds of things, unhook and so forth and so on. Well, I went to Dan Chandler, who was a Greco coach. I went up to him to train with him for a week. I forget when it was, before the 80 Olympic trials. Harold Nichols paid for that. I went and trained with him. And, and you know, we learned all the fighting hand techniques. And after that, it was a wrap. Nobody's going to touch me. <laughs> when they came after me, I would arm throw them. I'm going to trip them. I mean, you know, it was it was a bad thing for them. Um I just don't have that. I don't have that feel for for how I could be really beneficial to my technique would be beneficial to people of that level, except for a front headlock. I have a free, a mean front headlock, and I think if guys are doing low singles, you know, they're going to run into that front headlock, and that's going to be a problem. Well, it's interesting because I was just watching some matches of of Kale versus Adam Sativa at the Oregon yesterday, and like Kale's a big guy and probably would have been one weight class below you. Um, during your same weight class, same weight class. So even even better comparison. So were were guys at that weight going like ankle picks and low ankles like that, like Kale did? Like that was all new. That's all new. Yeah. That's all new. Yeah. And then the scrambling is. What are your thoughts on on that? Is that is that evolved as well? When you say scrambling from once you get to low single, once you get to a low single, once you get to to any type of single, really, where now a lot of guys start to go from there, you know, especially in folk style, but but even freestyle, yeah, you know, you you saw that a little bit with with Askren or No Wade, and it's certainly John in the once he started getting into his series. 
Yeah, it, it, it's just really, it's a different sort of, it's a different focus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What was, what was the, uh, so after, after 90, after the car accident, you, you retire and basically now what, what was the transition like for you at that point going, was it back into a, to law full time or did you coach in in the nineties? No, I never, I didn't coach in the nineties. Um, I had, um, I left Carrier Corporation, which is the company that sponsored me. Uh, I was doing some labor law in Albertsons because I thought maybe I'd get into the labor law with respect to pro sports to do some of that. Um, that didn't pan out. But then I got um, selected. Uh, I was involved politically with the Olympic movement. So I was doing a lot of Olympic movement stuff. I was also arbitrator hearing Olympic movement cases on doping and and, and, so, and so forth. So I was doing a lot of that stuff um, with the Olympic Committee. And um, then I got to travel that way. So you were on the arbitration committee. That's interesting. I bet you saw a well, lot. I was, well, yeah. Yeah, and sort of. It's, like I, I was, think of... I uh, the, yeah. Go ahead. I was the first African-American to ever be the head of an Olympic sport. Uh, the boxing athletes got control of their their sport for about a year and a half, and and they had seen me work with as the elected representative of athletes for all athletes. They'd seen me work there, so they got me as their executive director, what we would call a CEO today. Um, and so that was something I was doing, which was a challenge, and it was it, it's interesting because, you know. Boxing is, is 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 how would I say it? It's it's this fatalistic sport. They do everything to hurt themselves. I've never seen people more focused on 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 hurting themselves, diminishing their value, than I have seen boxers do. It's it's like that. My whole concept of a what a loser is changed. A loser is not a person who can't win. A loser is a person who's winning and decides to do things so he loses. That's what a loser is. Um, and that's my experience that I saw from boxing. They've got, they've got some problems uh, with their athletes, um, and the programs is pretty predatory. So it's it's not a good deal at all. It's funny because they say boxing is a sweet science, and a lot of people think of wrestling as like these big brutes, but you kind of see it the opposite. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, so so in, in, in boxing, every coach basically wants to bring their boxer up to the pros and they make a lot of money, right? So, for example, if I'm with Jay Robinson, Jay Robinson says, hey, hey Chris, you go go over to, to uh, Russ Hellickson and ask him to teach you how to do a double leg, you know? So a boxing, well, they won't do that. They won't go out and learn globally. And, you know, Jay was always like, you know, you go, you find a guy when he does do his best and you'll talk to him and beg him to teach you. Most guys will teach you. Not the case in boxing. No, no, the coaches they they get very territorial and it kills them, and, and they don't get paid much money, and it, it was just a bad situation. Uh, in fact, it's kind of funny. Uh, so, so I was um, I I was the executive director of whatever they they called it, and the um, and my treasure my the, the person I hired is my. Uh, accountant had written a ten thousand dollar check to a Russian, 
without letting me know. Um, and so I was freaked out. So I wrote a letter of reprimand to her. And, you know, I, I was very concerned about bribery. Um, and so once I wrote a letter of reprimand to her, the, 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 the people who were elected wrote a, leper, a letter of reprimand to me. And, 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 I, and I thought at that time, okay, well, look, if this thing goes public and people will realize that if, if it is in fact, I don't know, it is in fact a $10,000 payment to Russian to bribe people, then people are going to go to jail. They're going to blame me. They're setting you up. <laughs> so I'm getting out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Out. Yeah. So what, what was the payment for? Did you ever find out? Nope. Wow. It's interesting because... They were pissed off and they didn't want me to know. You probably don't want to know either, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, I didn't want to be involved in that for sure. It's crazy though that you think uh, if any sport you're going to be basically the, the rich bender of, uh, you know, that we know now, executive director of USA Wrestling, you were that for boxing, which is, which is pretty cool because, you know, I think a lot of people uh, see boxing and wrestling, you know, individual sport, tough competitors, but you said something that was interesting for a year and a half boxers got control back. what do you mean by that? Well, they, they controlled their, uh, they had control of the board of directors, the board of directors who hire and fire the, um, the athletic directors. So you had, athletes who have used to me working with at the Olympic Committee. Um, and so they elected me in. So once their election, that period, that election cycle changed, we got a whole new board of directors in and they were really hostile to me. Um, even though I had um, brought in the biggest sponsorship contract in history uh, of boxing at the time, I had um, established a, a boxing stipend for all the wrestlers which I think they still have today. So they, they, they were paid every month because I did a business plan to determine, hey, you know, these guys are going pro. They're not getting paid much in pro. We can keep them as amateurs uh, if we just give them a little money. Right. Then I got approval from the International Federation to do it. And we get it. We get it. We got the program going. Wow. That's then, cool. they, and then they won. Then they went to the, they had the Goodwill Games and, and I had, they were going to do just a week training. And I was like, are you crazy? So I brought them up to the Olympic Training Center, trained them for a month, you know, and then they just killed everybody at the Goodwill Games. They, they were amazed. And did you know anything about like boxing skill and technique or? No, I mean, no, I didn't know about boxing technique, but from Gable, I knew about being in shape. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, and, and I knew, I, and I knew that you don't go for, you know, a big international competition and train for one week. That's That's crazy. insane. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Gable certainly had a big impact on you and, and Harold Nichols, and, and you mentioned you know several others. But one guy I saw in your corner at the 92 games, Dave Schultz, how did, how did that come to be that he was in your corner? Well, um, me and Dave were good friends for a long, long period of time. And, and I felt that uh, Dave understood my wrestling style, and I, you know, he had to be in my corner. I believe that if Dave was in my corner at the 1991 World Championships, I would have beaten the Cuban and won, and won a gold medal. He was supposed to be there. They didn't let him there. So then it came to the Olympic Games. And so we were at the Olympic Games, and they came up to me, and they go, oh, by the way, because Dave was going to be in my corner, Dave was not going to be in your corner. And I said, okay, well, I'm not going to wrestle. Because I really felt that it was very important for him to be in my corner. Why would they care who's in your corner? They, they have all this fighting. Everybody wants to be in the corner of Olympic Games, you know. So they, they have certain coaches, you know, there were two or three, and they didn't want anybody else. 
but they had promised that we'd have what we wanted, at least one coach who you wanted. And there was, you know, and, and so they came at me with that. And, and I, I think they realized that that could have, that would have been quite a bit of a scandal uh, if I didn't mess up. Yeah. And so you, you did end up having David and you said you felt like he understood your style. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of a, like off the mat personal relationship did you have with him? We were really close friends. We'd go spend Christmas with him all the time. Me, my my wife at the time, and my three kids. Was that three, three kids at the time, and and Dave and Alexander and his his daughter. Um, and so, and the families are close even to this day. Wow. But I really like Dave. Um, he was, you know, a different kind of person. But um, yeah, so you know, there are a few people I'm really fond of. He certainly. I was incredibly fond of. Is there anyone else in the wrestling world that comes to mind as a major mentor influence for you that we haven't haven't hit on so far? Well, you know, you hate to to to, to sort to of leave anyone off. <laughs> but um, oh, Stan Desik, without now. Stan Desik was the world team coach, um, and. I think I went on a tour with Stan Desik. We went to, I think, in Russia and also to Japan. And on the tour in Russia, he was really upset with us because we weren't serious. And so I had to go apologize to him and say, hey, I won't do it again. If you give me a chance, I will let you down. Uh, and so I had learned a lot of technique from Stan, defensive technique, you know, really good stuff. And uh, when I won the world championship, I was thrilled to share it with him, yeah. So he said, when you guys weren't serious, you're just, you're, you're staying loose, having a good time or that you guys were, oh, we were, I mean, you know, we're wrestlers. <laughs> yeah. And it's crazy because you think about all your travels, you saw literally the, the demise of the Soviet union during your time. I mean, when you went on some trips in those 90, 91, 92 tours, did you go to the, to the, any Soviet countries or, or well, you... so, so the, the, the day they collapsed, um, we we were on a trip to Krasnoyarsk, uh, and and USA Wrestling canceled the trip. It was <laughs> me, Kevin Jackson, and a bunch uh, some other guys. And we're like, no, we're going anyway. So we got our tickets done, and we flew over there. Uh, and, and and Dave was with us too. Me and Dave both won Krasnoyarsk and the Tbilisi tournament that year. But that was right in the middle of the crash. And so we got like as soon as we got there, they gave us these hundred dollar rubles, right? Hundred rubles, and like. The next day, all of that was no longer good good money. Worthless. Yeah. yeah. So that was so we had sold our jeans and got all these hundred dollar rubles in, and it was worthless. What it is it with the Russian and jeans back then? And everyone says okay. the jeans. They love okay. it. We call it the jeans exchange rate, right? <laughs> don't don't bring money to Russia, you bring jeans. You get hundred, hundred, hundred rubles, two hundred, two hundred rubles. Really. So I was that the Yurigan tournament you were going to? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you guys both won it that year. We won it, won both tournaments, Regan and Tbilisi. Yeah. Man, that's unbelievable. And the thing you mentioned, I, I just want to go back to one th- one time is your bronze medal at the 92 Olympics. You had to beat the Cuban who took you out the year before to get to that bronze medal match. Is that right? Oh yeah, that was a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm, I'm wrestling with this Man. guy. It's Roberto Lamonte, which... You know, I'd love, I'd love the guy, but, you know, Respect. no wrestling at all, but, you yeah, know, yeah. Competitors, real competitors. And, uh, you know, he had beaten me in the world, not the World Cup, the Pan American Games. My grandmother passed away, then I 
went down to the Pan Games and, you know, he had, um, I had slipped on water. And that's how he took me down. It was a close match. And then they had the bands come out. They're playing the band and they were going around just having a great celebration. So, uh, you know, and then in the World Championships the next next year, I beat Karatsev. I was on my way to the finals and he beat me out there. So I, I definitely had some bad feelings about him. And so we were in the match and, and I, won, I won two sudden death overtime matches at the Olympic Games. One was with him. And I can remember uh, I had a front headlock and I went to the to get the far ankle to the front headlock. And I was figuring he's going to kick out. I was going to lose it. So I just held on for dear life. He kicked, but he must have been tired because he didn't kick that hard. And I held it. So I won. You know, and then I looked down and he was like, uh, put his hand to his face screaming, no, no. And I could see, you know, this was his whole life. And he had just lost. Most important thing he ever wanted to do. I was so happy. <laughs> you know, I just like overjoyed. Wow. Especially, I mean, going into it, you know, you, you're you're 0-2 against the guy and your whole your whole chances of meddling depend on you beating him at the highest highest right. possible stakes. The worst the worst time he lost at me at the worst time for him. Yeah. Wow. And so you could just hear that anguish in his voice as soon oh, as I see it. He was like literally put his hand to his face and was screaming. And I was just loving it. Wow. <laughs> I said something to him in fact I got you. <laughs> it was petty it was petty i must say <laughs> man when you're in the heat of it like that though it's like it's do or die i mean literally i mean not literally but pretty close i mean the amount of time and effort you put into it and and after just what it and i guess one of the themes i'm hearing from you is that when you put in 80 when you put in some of these crazy rule changes it just seems like a lot of sometimes things are out of your hands and it was a lot of like jurisdiction and red tape yeah, it was like the world that conspired against me getting the Olympic gold medal, right? It's like they weren't just going to let it happen. I mean, I was lucky to get a medal, really. Right. Well, Mr. Campbell, you've uh, been so gracious with your time. Uh, thanks for going through uh, some of these moments here. Uh, you know, it was just super exciting to get you on the podcast. We always wind down with how did wrestling change your life? But before we get there, were there any uh, stories or, or takeaways from the sport you wanted to share? No, I, I don't think so. All I, I could say is just the, the, sort of the greatest feels I've had in my life was when like Jim Gibbons won the national championships and Mark Kerr won the national championships. And I've been working with those guys, obviously um, uh, Nate. Nate uh, also. So were you coaching Nate when he was wrestling Kenny? Yeah. yeah. Kenny calls me up today and he says, <laughs> he always says, you know, if you won there, he wouldn't have won all those national titles. <laughs> And the craziest part about it was I was just at the national tournament with my brother and the semifinals were watching Monday car and like yeah. just the chances for those kids to be at the same weight, same age, same skill level. Unbelievable. Yes. Yeah, incredible. Nate. I mean, Nate Carr. he, it's interesting because in the freestyle scene, he dropped down a weight, right? And Kenny stayed up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, I can't even imagine some of those battles that the last thing I just did just want to ask you though, is, you know, the podcast is called wrestling changed my life. What would you say are some of the biggest lessons or the biggest takeaways you have from Grace Border wrestling? Well, I mean, the one, the, the one of the biggest is that you either do it or you don't, you know? Um, and so for me, it was like, well, if you want to get something done, you got to pull in a full time. If you don't put in, in all the time that you need, whether it be a law degree, 
whether it be working for USA Boxing or, or wrestling, <laughs> then you, you know you're not going to you're not going to win, and therefore you know uh, don't feel sorry for yourself. Put put the time in and and win or don't. You either do it or you don't. Yeah, and it's yeah. up to you. That's the that's the the scary part and the freeing part. Yeah, and I and I mean I got to travel all around the world. I think I've been to every continent, um, and um, and that that you know. You can't put a price on that. No, I mean, just any of those spots. I mean, the, just the life of a of an international tour. Um, you know, I don't know if you got to go to like Dagestan or Iran or Ossetia, but like those areas are or just any of them though would be amazing to see that. Especially how they re- how wrestling is so highly regarded in some places. Yeah, you know. Well, Chris Campbell, thank you very much for your time, sir. I greatly appreciate it. You have nothing uh, but a great day, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life with Chris Campbell. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating. Please review the podcast and please subscribe. It helps bubble up this podcast to wrestling fans just like you. And that's it, folks. We'll see you next week with a new episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. Peace!